Chapter 18 of The Gladstone Colony, an unwritten chapter of Australian history by James Francis Hogan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. A couple of colonial lectures. Having regard to his surpassing qualifications as a speaker, the vast range of his reading, his personal magnetism, and wonderful powers of exposition and illustration, it is somewhat surprising that Mr. Gladstone should have figured so rarely in his long public life in the capacity of a lecturer. No doubt the explanation is that British statesmen of the first rank are more fettered by the unwritten laws of tradition and etiquette than American public men who take to the lecturing platform like ducks to water. Still, Mr. Gladstone has delivered avowed and advertised lectures in his time, although they have been but few and far between. While on a visit to Howarden Castle, then in the occupation of his relative Sir Stephen Glynn, Mr. Gladstone delivered a lecture in the boys' schoolroom of the village on the 12th of October 1855, taking as his subject the colonial policy of England. The address was given at the request of a number of working men constituting the committee of the Literary Institute of the village. Charges of sixpence and a shilling were made for admission, and there was a crowded attendance. The English artisan or labourer, said Mr. Gladstone, in emigrating, looked to the interest of those over whom God had given him control. He saw in the far-off country a better prospect for his family, better remuneration for his own labour, more of the comforts of life within his reach, and he was thus willing to forego the pleasures of the present for the hopes of the future. Such were the men who were leaving the shores of England in such numbers each succeeding year. Many good, pious men advocated colonisation because it gave facilities and opportunities for conveying to the benighted and the ignorant a knowledge of the truths of the gospel. Such a motive as that every Christian mind must respect, but it was to be feared that few immigrants left the shores of England impelled by such a motive. The most general influence which had operated in leading thousands to the auriferous shores of Australia would be found in the love of gold, a love which has always existed, and which not infrequently led to bad as well as good results. There was something marvellous in this love of gold. Persons who could not be acted upon in any other way were often found most enthusiastic in the pursuit of the precious ore. The discovery of a gold mine excited the curiosity and the cupidity of thousands, while the discovery of an ironstone mine scarcely attracted attention at all, and yet the one was not more important than the other. An ironstone mine was as useful, and therefore proportionately, as valuable. Without ironstone, gold would lose much of its worth, because, while gold was only used as a representative of value, ironstone was the value itself, and the value of each was relative to the other. Yet the discovery of ironstone did not tickle people's fancy or desire like gold. Before the discovery of America by Columbus, there was an idea floating in the minds of philosophers that, on the other side of the Atlantic, there must be a continent of corresponding weight, which acted as a counterpoise and kept the earth in equilibrium. The Spanish adventurers who went out and took possession of that new world found no gold mines, but they got what was infinitely better, a free soil, and room for active operations in commerce and trade. After describing, quote, the fallacies and fallacies that kept our colonies poor and dependent and made them a clog and a burden to England instead of a benefit and a blessing, end quote, Mr. Gladstone enlarged on his favourite text of the wisdom of conceding to the colonies perfect freedom in all that appertained to their domestic concerns. Some, he said, had argued that if the colonies were allowed to govern themselves, levy and collect their own revenue, they might be tempted to tax articles which were required in the home country as food, 
and which were now received in english ports almost duty free the very selfishness of this idea made it ridiculous as long as british merchants possessed the spirit of enterprise that had rendered them the glory of the country they need be under no apprehension that the parent state would suffer even though the colonists should levy taxes upon the articles of merchandise in which they dealt the british merchant might always be trusted to find the cheapest and best markets by using which his capital was alone made productive and the interests of his country subserved the moral benefits of colonization arose out of the influence which attached to the spread of the english language english habits and english tastes over different parts of the world to have the signs of english families planting themselves in the colonies rearing their offspring and extending the area occupied by the sturdy anglo-saxon race was to increase the moral influence of old england and maintain in a natural and legitimate manner the prestige of her name although much diversity of opinion existed amongst all classes of contemporary politicians in reference to the colonies yet all were inclining towards a more liberal and enlightened policy and the spirit of prejudice which distinguished the latter end of the last century had given place to views opinions and sympathies which augured well for the future they might hope therefore that the experiences of the past would be of use in the present and that the future policy of england in regard to the colonies would be candid honest and wise for it was only by a liberal and enlightened course of treatment that the parent country could reap the full advantage and benefit of her great territorial dependencies on monday the twelfth of november eighteen fifty five mr gladstone delivered a second lecture on our colonies to the members of the mechanics institute chester and it was fully reported by the gentleman who is now mr justin mccarthy m p but who was then a young man on the staff of the northern daily times mr mccarthy's report was revised by mr gladstone and published with his permission as a pamphlet of twenty-one pages at the outset mr gladstone declared that he scarcely knew how to select from the vast redundance which the subject offered the limited amount of material that must suffice for a single address the little word colonies included in itself ample matter for the most interesting discussion so vast that even the minor branches of it had given occasion for the most important and interesting treaties in their distinct and separate forms if for example he named such a question as the discovery of gold in australia such a question as the laws which governed and regulated emigration such a question as the history of negro slavery and the means through which it had been brought to an end such a question as the treatment of the aboriginal tribes inhabiting and bordering upon various british settlements or to name only one more such a question as the great subject of the transportation of british criminals to distant british possessions each one of these apart from every other was not only sufficient to occupy the utmost period which he could possibly ask that night from the indulgence of his hearers but had been found sufficient to occupy nights upon nights weeks upon weeks and months upon months of the thoughts of the ablest writers and the discussions of both houses of parliament entering on what he designated as quote, the rudest and very slightest sketch of a subject so vast in its range end quote, mr gladstone proceeded to point out that the great subject of the colonies of the british empire had now come to constitute a question of the most just and legitimate interest to every englishman and amply justified the zeal and favour that were testified by the crowded attendance of that evening in the middle of the last century the american colonial empire of england was in simple and literal truth the envy and admiration of the world it was then thought that nothing could be seen for centuries upon centuries to compare with that empire and yet the american population at the outbreak of the war of independence 
amounted to only two millions of souls what was the state of things now why the single colony of canada contained a population nearly equal to the whole of the thirteen american colonies of that time such was the magnitude and importance to which the empire had attained again there was scarcely any european language of note or importance which was not spoken in the colonies the subjects of the queen in malta and the ionian islands spoke the beautiful languages of italy and greece a considerable portion of the canadians the people of the populous island of mauritius the people of st lucia and other west indian islands spoke the language of the great french nation in british guiana and at the cape of good hope dutch was spoken in the important colony of trinidad spanish was the vernacular tongue and thus the queen of england of an island which was once looked upon as a separated and remote extremity of the habitable globe possessed an empire under which were arrayed not only barbarous tribes who spoke tongues almost innumerable but communities who spoke the most cultivated distinguished and famous languages of highly civilized europe turning to the question of emigration mr gladstone said it was formerly a matter of remote knowledge and concern and even twenty or thirty years ago it was regarded only as a means of getting rid of the off-scourings of the population but now it had become on the contrary a matter of close and domestic interest to many of the most intelligent the best conditioned and most respected families in the country in the year eighteen fifteen the entire number of emigrants who left the shores of england was two thousand in fifteen years from eighteen fifteen to eighteen thirty the average immigration of england was twenty thousand the average for the years between eighteen thirty and eighteen forty four rose from twenty thousand to eighty thousand during the next ten years it rose to two hundred and sixty seven thousand and in the year eighteen fifty two the sum total reached no less a number than three hundred and sixty eight thousand people over a thousand persons thus quitting the shores of england every day to find a home in the british colonial empire it would thus be seen that the increase in the quantity of the emigration was of a most remarkable character the change in the quality was still more worthy of notice because for a long time emigration was nothing but the resort of the most necessitous now on the contrary in a great many cases many present that evening would be able to bear testimony to instances within their own domestic sphere or private knowledge it was not the needy and the necessitous but it was the most adventurous the most enterprising the most intelligent man the most valuable member of society in the sphere in which he moved who went to seek his fortune in those distant lands mr gladstone then entered into a minute discussion of the questions why was it desirable that england or any other country should possess colonies at all and assuming that such possessions were desirable in what manner should those colonies be founded and governed the time was when these were treated as party questions but he trusted and believed that that time had passed away and the truths relating to this great subject were beginning to be generally acknowledged and that the english people were thoroughly united as to the mode of fulfilling one of the highest functions which providence seemed to have committed to their hands namely that of conducting the work of colonization and peopling a great portion of the habitable globe the vast colonization of modern times which took its course from eastward to westward across the atlantic must have been prompted by some powerful motive what was that motive it was the love of gold that drew forth from italy spain france england and portugal those men whose bold and adventurous spirit tracked the stormy atlantic and founded successively amidst dangers and difficulties indescribable 
those colonies which had now grown into the great states of northern and southern america they went to america in search of gold they found no gold but observe how by the wise dispensations of providence the very delusions of mankind were made to serve their great interests in north america there was no discovery of the precious metals worth naming but there was a discovery of a great and powerful country teeming with all the resources of nature offering a home to mankind and the most extended field for the development of human energy and industry in every branch some had said and more had thought that colonies were to be founded for the sake of increasing and improving by their direct contributions the revenue of the mother country and of this idea there were contemporary instances in the colonies of spain but also in some of the colonial possessions of holland but that had never been the view with which the work of british colonization had been carried on others again had thought that it must be desirable to possess colonies because colonies constituted a large addition to the territory of the country undoubtedly the possession of territory was valuable provided a proper use was made of it but it was not desirable for england or any other nation to possess an extent of territory without bounds and without reference to the power of turning it to account then again people had a notion that for the reputation of the country it was desirable to possess colonies he did not desire that the possession of colonies did contribute to the just reputation of england and add to its moral influence power and grandeur but if it was meant by this doctrine that it was desirable to have colonies in order to make a show in the world with which there was no substance to correspond that they would all agree was not a good reason for desiring an extension of a colonial empire it could never be to the interest of england or any other country to be taken for more than it was worth there was again a notion more vulgar than any of these that it was desirable to possess colonies for the sake of the patronage they afforded to the home government many present were old enough to remember occasions when persons whom it was not convenient or decorous to provide for at home had received appointments in the colonies but of such cases he hoped there would be no recurrence an idea far more important and effective to a far greater extent was the theory that colonies ought to be maintained for the purpose of establishing an exclusive trade the whole profit of which should be confined to and enjoyed by the mother country that was in fact the basis of the modern colonial system of europe now look at the effect of an idea of such a nature when colonies were founded upon this principle the home government acted as if the colony could only benefit one other country by its trade it proceeded upon the false notion which was once at the bottom of the commercial laws of england and which was still at the bottom of the commercial laws of many other nations the notion that there could be any other basis whatever for trade except the benefit of both parties concerned the idea that any trade was possible where all the gains were at one side the idea above all that whatever was gained by one was taken from the other that was the great fallacy of the protective system the system which prevailed still in many countries of europe the truth on the contrary with respect to trade being that when one man gained the other man must gain also there was no possible mainspring of trade except the benefit of both parties engaged in carrying it on mr gladstone repudiated any and all of those reasons for desiring the possession of colonies why then were colonies desirable in his opinion they were desirable both for the material and for the moral and social results which a wise system of colonization was calculated to produce as to the first the effect of colonization undoubtedly was to increase the trade and employment of the mother country take the case of the emigrant going across the atlantic why did he go to america 
because he expected, and in general he was the best judge of his own interests, to get better wages across the Atlantic than he could get at home. If he went across the Atlantic to get better wages, he left in the labour market at home fewer persons than before, and consequently raised the rate of wages at home by carrying himself away from the competition with his fellows. By going to a colony and supplying it with labour, he likewise created a demand for capital there, and by that means created a trade between the colony and the mother country. The capital and labour thus employed in the colony raised and exported productions, for which commodities were wanted in return. Of those commodities, a very large proportion was usually sought from the parent country, for it was almost always the case that a colony was founded under circumstances where the country to which the settlers went produced the very commodities which were wanted in the country they had left. Therefore, so far as trade and the gain connected with trade were concerned, it was perfectly obvious that the foundation of a colony, where it was the natural and spontaneous result of the circumstances in which a country was placed, was simply a great enlargement of the material resources of that country. There could be no doubt that the possession of colonies like those of England, which were peopled by the spontaneous operation of natural causes, or, in other words, by the free judgment of the people, each man carrying his labour, or his capital, to the market where he thought he might get the best price for either, was eminently beneficial, not because it created a more profitable trade than other trades, but because it created a perfectly new trade, and a trade which would not otherwise have existed. The moral and social advantage of colonies was also a very great one. An increase of population was an increase of power, an increase of strength and stability to the state, because it multiplied the number of people living under good laws and belonging to a country to which it was an honour and an advantage to belong. That was the great moral benefit that attended the foundation of British colonies. Theirs was a country blessed with laws and a constitution that were eminently beneficial to mankind, and that, being so, what could be more desirable than that they should have the means of reproducing in different portions of the globe something as like as might be to the country which they honoured and revered. It was, he believed, in a work by Mr. Roebuck that the expression was used that, quote, the object of colonisation is the creation of so many happy Englands, end quote. It was the reproduction of the image and likeness of England, the reproduction of a country in which liberty was reconciled with order, in which ancient institutions stood in harmony with popular freedom and a full recognition of popular rights, and in which religion and law had found one of their most favoured homes. And as it was the destiny of man to live in society under laws and institutions, it was desirable that he should live under good laws and institutions, and it was because Britons were convinced that their constitution was a blessing to them, and would be a blessing to their posterity, as it had been to their forefathers, that they were desirous of extending its influence that it should not be confined within the narrow borders of one little island, but that, if it pleased Providence to create openings for them upon the broad fields of distant continents, they should avail themselves in reason and moderation of those openings, to reproduce the copy of those laws and institutions, those habits and national characteristics, which had made England so famous as she was. Mr. Gladstone then proceeded to discuss the practical question, how colonies could be founded and governed. He eulogised and described in detail the ancient Greek system of colonisation and the, quote, true spirit of British freedom, end quote, in which the first American colonies were established and administered. Touching upon the American War of Independence, Mr. Gladstone said that before England began the system of meddling and peddling in the affairs of her American colonies, the attachment of these colonies to the mother country was warm, strong and affectionate, 
but when the British colonists in America saw a disposition to deprive them of their time-honoured hereditary privileges, when they saw that Englishmen, so jealous of their own liberties at home, were disposed to stint and narrow the enjoyment of such liberties by their brethren who had crossed the Atlantic, a bitterness of sentiment sprang up, and the bitterness was not the fault of the Americans. It was the unhappy result of the errors of British policy, and of the circumstances of the time. The unhappy consequence of this feeling, aggravated in the course of a long, bloody, and obstinate struggle, was that at the time when American independence was acknowledged, the affections of the Americans towards their motherland had received a desperate blow. For a long time the name of Englishman was odious, and naturally odious, in America. The name of England was associated with oppression, and those among the Americans, who were known to entertain a strong feeling of affection towards her, were odious in the eyes of their fellow countrymen. That temporary estrangement of feeling, which was then almost total, and which even now, notwithstanding the healing influence of time, had necessarily left some traces behind, was part of the mighty price that England had paid for the error involved in a misconception of the right manner of governing her colonies, the error of attempting to levy taxes upon the people of America. Some people thought that that was not an error of the English people. Let there be no mistake on that head. If there was one thing in history more clear than another, it was that the English nation, at the beginning of the American war, was suited almost to a man in the prosecution of that war. All wars, almost without an exception, had been popular in England during the first year, or even during the second and third, but the American war was especially popular in its earlier stages. The military organisation was all on the side of England, but it was not the want of success in the field that defeated England in the American war, it was this, that though they most commonly beat America in the field, they were no nearer than before to the subjugation of the country. They possessed the ground where the camps had been pitched, but they possessed nothing else. The enemy was in the heart of every man, woman, and child, and driving their soldiery out of the field did not establish the power of England in the hearts of a people who were fighting for their freedom. The case of the American War, considering how universally it was now admitted that a great error was committed in beginning and in continuing it, was one upon which Englishmen could look back with great advantage, for all generations and all times, as a most emphatic lesson of caution, circumspection, and moderation. From 1783 to 1840, the idea was entertained that it was absolutely necessary that the local affairs of the colonies should be directed from a certain spot in the city of London. It was difficult to believe to what an extent this interference with the affairs of their fellow colonists was carried. In the first place, it was thought that they, in England, should retain in their own hands, and on no account give the colonists the disposal of the unoccupied lands of the colonies. Then it was thought that, in addition to the taxes raised by the colonists themselves to support the colonial government, there should be another set of revenues, called crown revenues, to provide for the contingency that the people of the colony might be so ignorant and barbarous as to make no provision for the very first necessities of their own government. The next step was to keep standing armies in the colonies to discharge the functions of police, the consequence of which was enormous expense to the mother country and the greatest mischief to the discipline of the army, the troops being parcelled out here, there, and everywhere in such small bodies that they lost the unity of action which an army acquired by being trained and disciplined in masses. Another mistake in the practice was that of requiring the people of the colonies to establish a civil list, a certain range of salaries for governors, judges, secretaries, and other public officers. Did the home government suppose that the colonists themselves did not recognise the necessity of law and order? 
Another faulty rule was the establishment for each colony of a certain tariff of differential duties, the mother country thus dictating by means of commercial laws the price to be paid for commodities coming to the colonies from any quarter of the globe. The North American was thus compelled to pay an extra price for West Indian sugar, and he was compensated in turn by making the West Indian pay an additional price for North American wool, so that instead of the commercial interchange being a blessing or a benefit, it was made an interchange of evils and reciprocal inflictions. Lastly, it was the custom to exercise patronage in the colonies as far as could be safely ventured, and whenever there were people who were not quite presentable at home, whom the English would not quietly endure to see appointed to office in their own country, it was commonly thought they were quite good enough to hold office, often with a handsome salary, in some remote colony. The general effect of this system of governing the colonies from Downing Street decidedly tended to alienate the hearts of the colonists from the mother country. It led to a knot of people in each country combining together and calling themselves the British Party. They were always extremely loud in their professions of zeal in support of the executive, and they generally had one or more newspapers behind them. The rest of the community were deemed anti-British, and thus the name that ought to have been the dearest of all names to every colonist became the arbitrary distinction of a few, as opposed to the mass of the community. On the one side was the governor with a little body of official persons, and another little body of individuals picked out of the community. These were tugging one way, supported by the power of the British government, and on the other side was tugging the whole mass of the colonial population. Happily, all that was now changed. The principle was now fully recognised that the local affairs of free colonies should be fully managed by the colonists themselves, and in this connection Mr Gladstone said he wished to discharge a debt of justice. There were some men in England who had undoubtedly proceeded far in advance of their fellow legislators with regard to colonial affairs. He mentioned them because, for the most part, they were men with whose political opinions it was his fate, commonly or very frequently, to differ. Moreover, he thought that as the time of the greatest colonial freedom, the reign of Charles II, was eminently a Tory time, it was but fair and in the spirit of equal justice to render their due to men of a quite different political connection some of the radical members of the British Parliament. Mr. Hume, Mr. Roebuck, and a gentleman whose name had just been added to the list of the departed, Sir William Molesworth, were all of them great benefactors to their country by telling the truth upon the right method of colonial government at a time when the truth was exceedingly unpopular. Of Sir William Molesworth he would say that he had the greatest satisfaction in owning the benefit and instruction which during many years he had derived from personal communication with that distinguished man on colonial questions, and in acknowledging how much he had learned from the speeches which Sir William had delivered from time to time on subjects of colonial policy in the House of Commons. In concluding his Chester address, Mr Gladstone said it was now coming to be understood that the affairs of the colonies were best transacted by the colonists themselves, as the affairs of England were best transacted by Englishmen. Upon this understanding they would act more and more, and with still increasing advantage. By all means let English institutions be founded in the colonies to the utmost extent to which their circumstances were adapted. The main question was, who was to be the judge of that extension? They at home were not good judges, whether laws useful and convenient to England ought to prevail in the colonies or not. The colonists themselves were the best judges of that. Experience had proved that in order to strengthen the connection between the colonies and the mother country, and secure the adoption of British institutions in communities beyond the seas, the hated name of force and coercion 
exercised by people at a distance over their rising fortunes, should never be invoked. Let the colonies be governed upon the principle of freedom. Let them not feel any yoke upon their necks. Let them understand that their relations with the old land were relations of affection, and Englishmen would surely reap a rich reward in the possession of that affection unbroken and unbounded. Defend them against aggression from without, regulate their foreign relations, but leave them their freedom of judgment. Then it would be hard to say when the day would come on which they would wish to separate from the great name of England. They coveted a share in that name, and in that feeling of theirs would be found the greatest security for the connection. The greatest purchases of books relating to old English history were the Americans. The Americans who came over to England sought out and visited the scenes where the most remarkable events in British history had occurred, for they could not forget that they were equally the descendants of men who had made that history. Let the name of England be made more and more an object of desire to the colonies. Their natural disposition was to love and revere it. The present and past year had afforded some proofs of that. Various colonies, some of them lying at the Antipodes, had offered their contributions to assist in supporting the wives and families of British soldiers, the heroes who had fallen in the Crimean War. This was one of the first fruits of the system upon which had been founded, during recent years, a rational mode of administering the affairs of the colonies without gratuitous interference. There was every encouragement for the extension of that system. There was so much union of feeling among the public and in Parliament with respect to it, that he trusted they might look forward with the utmost confidence to its prevalence and progress. For his part, he should ever thankfully rejoice to have lived in a period when so blessed a change in British colonial policy was brought about, a transition from misfortune and evil, in some cases from madness and crime, back to the rules of justice, reason, nature, and common sense. End of The Gladstone Colony an unwritten chapter of Australian history by James Francis Hogan. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.